I do have a feeling that you're almost too modest to go through the path of questions that I've prepared. Well, try. Okay, so I think your levels are fine. You can lean back in that chair. I'm probably going to be a little more... Okay, I'll try to be equidistant to you. Okay, so we're already rolling. That's the Pete Holmes approach. Yes. Don't even say in three, two, one, and we're live with John. Sure. Um, this is actually just going to be a conversation. Okay. But I am going to trigger some memories. Please. The thing about this is if I even called it an interview, then all of a sudden it would be me with a clipboard on my lap... And you feeling like, oh God, he's going to get all these facts wrong, which sure. is exactly right. Yeah. So I'm going to do your intro right now. Okay. And this is just according to me. It's like if I was writing your Wikipedia page and you didn't have the opportunity to edit it. So from my standpoint, here's my guest today. Yeah. Okay. John Bush, former child model, is in the dojo today. Can I say former child model from a Lynx ad? Did I make that up? <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> okay. We can get into that. But that's real? That's real. Okay, so let me just start there. Former child model is not necessarily <laughs> me lying. <laughs> it was you, your sister, David Kluger, maybe? Sure. In a bedroom playing Lynx, the old like knockoff of Game Boy? Yes, you're referring to a photo that has been on my wall most of my life. I still right. have it. Okay. Blown up photo. You're adorable. Uh, that do you, do you want that story first? real quick sure yeah that was uh, <laughs> not the hour-long version also in that photo if you didn't mention dave kluger yes and that what that is from that was at uh san francisco general children's hospital circa 1986 87 uh -huh. dave's dad owned uh something to do with the atari Lynx, the first one of the first portable color game systems, like the Game Handheld. Boy. Well, Game Handheld. Boy original was black and white. Correct. So this came after the Game Boy, and it was what it offered was color. Wow. But it was much bigger than the Game Boy and did not do well. <laughs> <laughs> the Atari Lynx. But some people will know what that is. L-Y-N-X? L-Y-N-X. Okay. Correct. I do remember. And originally, how I remember it, they were going to market the device to hospitals to buy in bulk for children's hospitals for the kids to play with. That was the first push Atari was going to make, or at least uh, that's how we got involved. So what they were doing was making an infomercial at San Francisco uh, Children's Hospital. And uh, me and Dave and a bunch of our classmates, my sister, I, I wish I could remember who all was there, possibly people you know. Yeah, Jer yeah. Jeremy Lansing. Who oh, knows? wow. Yeah. Any any uh, Brandeis kids around the time may have been there. And I just remember being in pajamas and yeah, spending were. all day uh, being directed by well, so that was cameramen. A, that was a costume, the pajamas. It wasn't you just showed up in pajamas. They put you in pajamas. Uh, no, I, I don't remember. We probably just wore our own pajamas. But they may have given us uh, pajamas to wear. Uh, I don't remember, but yeah. That I, was an ad? That it was a video. No, like I remember having a VHS tape of this infomercial oh. that was being passed around to hospitals selling the Atari Lynx. And so we it were, was a still. Photo. That was a still oh, photo. I thought it was a magazine ad. No, oh, okay. I I doubt that. I think that was a still photo <laughs> just for us. That probably Marshall Bush blew up. But it was a very professional photo. So that's a good question. There may have been a print version of the <laughs> Lynx ad. You know what's funny? I've looked at this photo for years, but I've never actually gotten the story. So I feel informed. So, and yeah, also... so it's actually me in the hospital bed, for anyone who doesn't hasn't seen this photo. <laughs> yeah. me, I'm me playing the Lynx, and then a bunch of kids around me. 
very jealous that I have this. Do you think it'd be fun just for nostalgic purposes to play Lynx today? You know, vintage gaming is in. Uh, Yes. Like students are playing, my kids are probably 15 year olds and they play Zelda. excited to hear that. Yeah, it is cool. I mean, that's some common ground, relatable common ground, but they view it as like, this is retro weird. But that's actually when I stopped playing video games. I never progressed past the original. Sure. Which is why at your house, beating Super Mario Brothers in about 10 minutes was a goal. Right. That's when I peaked. Right. I never continued past with Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis. Right. When I was dead broke. Sure. I couldn't picture this. Those systems were a lot of money. What kid could buy their own systems? <laughs> well, None. Not kid. But, you know, there was one family in every neighborhood. Of course. Where you would swarm to. Okay, so I'm not lying if I say former child model John Bush. I can also say... Uh, a high school basketball player at North Bay. We'll just Correct. glaze over that with the Panetti brothers. Okay. And now I can say chef, or do you want me to say cook from Rafael Racket Club Grill? Sure. Well, you have the same title. What do you What do you choose? I fucking loved that job. Do you vividly remember? <laughs> Short order cook. Is, Short order is cook. probably how I would. I was doing nothing this summer. Describe. We were 17, I think. Yeah. And you said, I can get you hired. This lady, Lorraine. Yeah. I never actually met her, but she was our boss. She hired me you over the never phone. never met Lorraine. Well, she might have come in like to drop some things off, huh. but she just hired me. She goes, you're a friend she of John. She trusted me. Yeah. To train you. But it's so funny that I never met her because she just said, yeah, follow John. But we were actually making things from scratch. Oh, yeah. It was we, a real restaurant we, we were running. We ran a kitchen. That was an unbelievable education. Yeah, we'd throw on the apron in the morning. We would fire off a couple V8s. I don't think we were coffee addicts yet. <laughs> like, we felt energized by V8. Did we? Yeah, mini cans. But they gave us a real gift, and that was an industrial-sized deep fryer. That's true. Which we would throw tomatoes in, pickles in, Anything. make our own tortilla chips. Absolutely. God! Yeah. It was, honestly, if I think about all the jobs, I don't know if I've ever had that much laughter. That's true. We'd get delirious. That is true. Doing impressions of our Israeli friend getting lyrics wrong. Oh my gosh. Do you remember this? Well, it's all coming back to me now. Absolutely. That was the origin of that that bit. (laughs) I must have cried tears into people's menu items. That's how much (laughs) we laughed that summer. Okay, so I could say a former basketball player. Obviously, I have you here because I want to talk about music. A child model. In addition to being one of the great chefs in the Rafael Racket Club history, they should put a statue up. Do you remember when they brought in a third employee, an older man by the name of Raymond or Seamus? What was his name? I couldn't tell you his name, but of course I remember Raymond. Give me, okay, was it Raymond? Let's agree on Raymond. Okay, for, let's for call him Raymond. the purpose of this conversation. Now, in my head, you know how memories get weird over time? I bet it's not that weird. Let's hear it. He seemed like an old pirate. Yes. Who just docked his ships. Oh, yes. Okay, so when we were cooks, <laughs> this would make for a pretty good, like, uh, Kevin Smith movie. Almost, I almost picture us like clerks. But when we were cooks, they thought, you know, the kids need a little strength in the kitchen. So she hired this guy who's probably in his 70s named Raymond. <laughs> yeah, they must have been old friends. Do you remember he brought... She trusted him. He brought a big leather bag with his own knives. Of course. And then you, when we started to think about this, we were like, this would be the greatest plot for a horror movie. This guy brought his own knives into our kitchen. He wasn't that friendly and he wasn't that mean. But right. he had his own methods when it come to, came to cutting chicken, cutting sure. steak, and sure. all this stuff. I, I want to say all of his fingertips <laughs> were half gone. I agree. <laughs> oh my God. So I didn't dream all of this? These are real not, memories? You did not dream Raymond, I don't think. Unless we shared the same dream. No, I, you know, I can't remember any specific Raymond stories, but an unbelievable character. You're not exaggerating. <laughs> I patch or no? 
Did he have an eye patch? <laughs> Maybe a fucked up eye. <laughs> he was the lead cook. He replaced us. I think I went back to the bench. Uh, yeah, I can't say there wasn't an eye patch. But that added to the humor of that summer. The fact that there's this old pirate with white hair rem- well, and a bag know, of knives. I think it might be one of those things that's funniest now. I'm sure we got a kick out of him then, but he wasn't entirely a joke at the time. He was somebody we had to work with. No, you're right. You're right. You know, he was a strong presence in that kitchen. <laughs> it was a, a small kitchen. To be reckoned with. Exactly. Okay, so the long intro is actually probably the entire podcast. I'm still introducing you. That's my theme. Do you realize that, of course, this interview will be heard by about eight people. There's no demographic. There's no audience. But I was looking up the biggest interview of all time. 90 million viewers. What comes to mind if I said in American media history, what's the biggest interview of all time? It's when you and I were 12. I'll give you a hint. And I guarantee you saw it. What was Michael Jackson's house called? Neverland? Neverland. Did you see Oprah? Do the interview with Michael Jackson. The primetime event, they called it. I probably did. It... Th- that is not a lasting memory that I can remember every detail of. Like 90, you can. 90 you know. million viewers. I know. It's like photographic in my mind. Because I was a big Jackson fan. Were you? Or was it your sister? My sister. Yeah, diehard. I was like insane diehard. Yeah. Like would record his music videos and practice the moves. Wow. Bought a wig. Wow. Had the white glove. I mean, seriously, it got a little sick. I think they had to wean me off my Michael Jackson addiction. But he hadn't done an interview in 14 years. Uh And in those 14 years, you know, his appearance obviously unraveled into just white skin, the nose jobs. 14 years. He had not done an official interview. Since the late 80s. Yeah, so Oprah landed this interview. And he he looked that bad by 1993? Oh, yeah. He still looked good, I thought. No, no, no. This was the big turning point because that was the big question. Would you like to explain why your skin turned white? Oh, sure. And he revealed that he had a condition. Right. And he, I remember he said, you know, why don't we turn the tables and talk about the people that go to the beach to turn their skin darker? You know, sun tanning. Good for him. That was his response. I don't think she brought up any of the molestation charges. I think this is right before that was like uncovered. Okay. And just like destroyed the guy's career and reputation. Although his music still sounds good, you know. Yeah. When you listen to Michael Jackson, what's the first thought you have? Do you think about kind of the sad criminal ending? Or do you think, this guy was just so gifted? Well, right now? No, I think of bad, the bad video. I mean, you know, and and I've gone online and watched him around that time touring his videos of his live performances from the bad tour. Unreal. Unreal. He was godlike. He's singing, he's dancing, the band is incredible. The stage production at the time, nothing had ever been done like that before. Well, even This Is It, the final documentary, when he was like 50 years old. Fantastic. And his backup dancers were saying, he's still the best. I mean, this guy, he was probably a little past his prime, but they were saying he's still the greatest. Of course. And then he died, I think, before that tour was about to kick off. But you should go back, if you could find it anywhere, the Oprah interview, 90 million viewers. So this is the exact opposite of what we're doing right now. It's not a good interview. Why would I want to watch that? Really? Yeah. Oh, I mean, he was the most awkward speaker. Okay, just for fascinating reasons. But oh, I, yeah, you're I would, right. I would be squir- squirming in my seat watching that interview. I'm sure every time he spoke, yes. no matter how big of a fan I was, I was like, just nervous for what he was going to say. It was cringeworthy, but that was the appeal. And it was also, he's going to open the doors to this big palace, and he took Oprah on the zipper of the Ferris wheel, and he danced on his stage. He had movie theaters. You remember this place? There were monkeys and sure. llamas, giraffes. It was like, holy shit. <laughs> he's finally like letting us there. in. I know. <laughs> But I remember after school, I think I was a sixth grader, having all my friends come over to watch because I taped it the night before. And we were like fully into it. I see. I see. 
So I, that was that was a big part of the Oprah interview was getting to see Neverland Ranch. Getting to see Neverland Ranch time. and talk about his visual transformation. Yes. You know, because what you're picturing, like the Motown reunion, when he was still a black man, or at least looked like a black man, to the time she interviewed him, he looked like a white woman, uh-huh. and he had never talked about it. So I think the Rosenberg-John Bush interview is going to be at the exact opposite end of this entire spectrum. This is, this is the least exciting, this in my opinion, is the least appealing interview, maybe in the history of the world. However, this is going to be a capsule of your life. Okay. So you'll listen to this, one day you'll have kids, they'll listen to this. So, so be as candid and honest as you want. As I finally I introduce I my see. guest today, his name is Jonathan David Bush. Don't Google him, you'll find nothing. And I gotta compliment you, because your social media presence is zero. <laughs> I, I honestly want you to explain that. You don't post zero. on Facebook. Yeah. You're barely on it. You're not on Twitter. Or you don't right. post. No, I, I'm not on it. No Snapchat, right? No. No Instagram? No. But this is great. I envy you. I'm not kidding right now because okay. I feel drawn to it. As right. society goes in that ugly direction. And I actually hate social media, right. but I'm a hypocrite because I'm on it. Right. You have avoided it successfully. Sure. And you don't yearn for it. Not at all. Do you almost fear that if you dipped your toe in, you would feel your brain rewired to this addiction? No, I, I've, I've spent enough time with it to know, to have already had my brain rewired. Have you really? I mean, it's it's the same behavior. I still play on my phone all day. I'm just not... Doing what? Reading news. Okay. You know, uh, reading my email. <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I look like everybody else playing with my phone all day. Do I, you really? I'm just never scrolling on social media. But why? Do you even know? Have you ever tapped into that aspect of your own oh, sure. psychology? Oh, sure. I mean... You're really my only friend who avoids it. For the same reason you're on it... Yeah. ...is the same reason I'm not at the moment. Because I remember when you first started using Twitter... Yeah. ...was because of radio stuff. And you've talked about this. That that's part of the industry, that you have to promote yourself via Twitter. Exactly. And the only times I have been on social media have been when I'm promoting... Something, uh, my music, uh, and I don't have anything to pr- promote at the moment, so therefore mm. I have zero presence. No part of me has any interest in selling my life like I would a band to the world. That doesn't interest me. Right. If you had like a satisfying experience at a restaurant, you can just enjoy it without letting your group of friends or the world know that you had a fucking burrito at El Jarache well, Loco. no. I might... I might annoy people letting them know how much I enjoyed a burrito, but it's going to be in person. Okay. Not on Facebook. Well, your girlfriend, she posts, like, you've taken about 30 cruises in the last month. So I've seen the mustard drill. So at least I kind of (laughs) know a few things about your life, thankfully, because your girlfriend does post. And I actually appreciate that. Sure. Like, I will even follow some of my friends' wives if they post more about the family, just to see it here and there. But I would say, as often as I cruise, I see you... And you know I'm going on a cruise. Yeah. And we usually talk about in person how the cruise was, and I'll show you some photos from my phone. I mean... That's all you need. What's the difference? I think the difference is how many people see that. And the people who I want to see it, I see in person. So... That's a healthy outlook. I don't even think you realize how healthy that outlook is. I understand. I You know, I, I think that's also like a, a principled reason not to do social media is because, I mean, you don't do it, uh, in my case... Uh, one, because there isn't a need for it, and uh, you... But you... there's not a need for anybody. Let's be honest. If none of it existed, the world would still be 100% okay. Yeah. There's not a need. 
I actually need to check myself because now that I have this little baby, there are times where I'm like, why am I tempted to go scroll through Twitter when I have this, you know, adorable human in front of me? I got to yeah. throw the phone away. I don't want to well, miss these you, times. I'll, I'll tell you, the only reason I have a Facebook account at this point, I've been wanting to deactivate it. The for, last for post years. is us hiking on Mount Tam in 2014. That's great. That's great. <laughs> That's and, I, great. and every day it crosses my mind to deactivate it. Uh, but the only reason I don't is because there are things on there um, that otherwise I wouldn't know about. I get invited to parties. Oh, that's true. Um, that otherwise I wouldn't even know that they were happening. And then I click maybe to every party invite. You don't want to commit. People think you've been abducted. Your Facebook profile is so dormant. People are certain. Do people really think that? I mean... No. I'm just I don't think... No, no, no. Not, Not even just about me, but... Uh, do people really rely on social media to stay in touch? I mean, our friends 100%. specifically, really, you think our, you think our friends wouldn't, I mean, you think they rely on that to stay connected? That's interesting. Rely on it? Possibly not, but I mean, we it's know. fun. It's, I think it's, my guess would be it's mostly something, um, around networking, around coworkers, around acquaintances, for fun. Yeah. Around your closest friends and family, really? I mean, did you, are you not going to know your, you know, sibling had a child unless you're on Facebook? Well, I, even your closest friends, you probably only see 12 times a year, once a month nowadays. Sure. That's, that's not a lot. Right. So there are a lot of little moments that I think people realize, eh, it'll be appreciated if they see my baby is walking. Right. Or, you know, we went to we went to Thailand. Very similar to that. So, yeah, I would agree. Like, once a month, if that. Yeah, you'll see a close, uh, a close friend or something. But I would say, and I'm sure there's, I'm sure I've seen, and I'm reciting research I've heard about, about Facebook, that that would be the healthiest amount to spend on there. Mm-hmm. Once a month, you go on and you see what your friends have been up to. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's good. You, you should don't have a quota. It, you know, well, right. I think everyone should set their own limits. I think they'll be happier overall. I mean, that that would be my guess. I'm, I think I'd be a happier person without it. I, and I'm it so I'm so or just aware. with less with less of it. I almost think that I have to cold turkey it one day. Sure, like just detach it's entirely. It's an addiction. I mean, it is the smartphone is an addiction. It is the amount of people now. now that are just looking down yeah. instead of you know hearing a bird chirp. Yeah, not to sound overly poetic, but the birds are going to chirp when you leave today. Yeah, if you're on your phone, you won't hear it. You won't even notice the trees. You won't notice the sun. I find myself if to be fully have. consumed oh, I see. when that screen's in front of my face. Like, I don't multitask at all. I'm just like, even if it's something like you're doing, like looking up a score, the Giants-Dodgers, Yeah, that's what you're doing in that moment. But isn't it, huh, I mean, that's interesting. You know, and maybe we're talking about different things, but it sounds to me like that is the essence of multitasking. I, I imagine you walking Muggsy around your complex. This is what talking, people think. Talking on it, like talking on the phone, plus you're reading your Twitter and texting somebody else. I mean, maybe not you, and maybe it's a different scenario that I'm thinking of. But I think a lot of people, I think that's part of the technology. Well, is here, that it It allows for multitasking and people are getting better and better at it. And it's it may be detrimental how much we're multitasking. Sure, but if one of the tasks is to be present, if that's one of the tasks You're not going to be present in any of them, I suppose. I right. don't know. Well, why is it just this idea that we have to multitask as humans? Why can't I just do a fucking task and then another task? 
The idea that I am returning an email as I'm taking Bart into the city yeah. and I'm taking photos and then I'm in touch and interacting. I don't actually understand the appeal of being so good really? at multitasking. I mean, this, I don't know. What this makes me think of is pre-technology. I mean, people didn't, let's, let's imagine people are riding a train across the country, maybe to work. Maybe let's say, let's picture East Coast cities the uh, early 20th century, people are riding the train around, going to work. With newspapers, you're saying? I'm saying no one's sitting there content <laughs> staring at a wall. You're right. I mean, you want to be talking to somebody. You want to be reading something. We, no, you're right. Humans by nature don't just want to sit there and do nothing and smell the flowers. I mean, That's that, so takes, funny. that takes a lot of work to be able to do that. It's funny that you point out how ridiculous that is. If that's my eternal goal, to just be present in every moment. You're like, that'll get so fucking boring so soon. Well, to no, just sit. Yeah. I think it's a reasonable goal, but but the idea that it's a, goes against human nature to want to multitask. No, I think our, our, I think it taps into our human nature to give us more ways to multitask. This is literally why meditation exists, That's so right. I can try to get in touch with a breath. That's right. A moment. People do so much work their whole lives, spiritually and philosophically, yes. to be able to just sit there. And not multitask. To get in touch I with mean, themselves. That's right. And meditation to me is one of the hardest things. And I attempt all the time and I get mad at myself. And they say, don't condemn yourself if your mind wanders. My mind only wanders. Yeah. I catch one or two breaths before I start even thinking about trivial things like my next meal. And like that consumes me. I go, do I want Thai food tonight? I had Thai food recently. Wait, I want to try that new pizzeria in Corte Madera. And then all of a sudden, five minutes go by, I go, why can't I get right. into this moment? Well, I'm curious. Do you feel like you're suffering? Is that like an anxious feeling, worrying about your next meal? Or is it... I no, mean, it feels like my natural mindset. Right. I think that's part of meditating. And I think that's why they tell you not to try to have a completely clear mind and think of nothing. You're no, right. I think it's just... Being present to think about your whatever naturally comes to your mind. You get the meal resolved. Hopefully, it's you're you're calm enough to slowly transition to the next thought rather than have them jump at you. In yeah, no, I need it. Way. I actually need it, and not to get too deep with it, but I think a lot of people who think they need meds, prescribed medications, yeah. are just in a rush to reach the goal. You know, feeling better mentally. When I meditate and successfully say do it for five days in a row, yeah, I feel better. I, I can't sure. even tell you why. I don't sure. know what happens with the wiring of my psyche, but I feel better. All right, so uh, here's what I wanted to jump into. The intro is clearly going in one direction. That's my buddy John Bush is a fantastic musician. The first time I met you, long hair in a Kurt Cobain Nirvana shirt. Yeah. Is that, would you say, your earliest memories of absolutely falling in love with a band? For me, like when I think about my earliest memories of music, in the house, I know my mom and dad... Played Paul Simon and Billy Joel. I still yeah. like them. Uh, but the Beatles, even though I like them, it's kind of their music. What was your first discovery of, like, I as an individual am drawn to this sound? Was uh, it Nirvana? No. Well, in the way you just described it, really being inspired and having music create joy for you. Yes. That goes back very early. My young toddler memories, probably things like the Supremes, oh, Diana yeah, Motown Ross's sound. voice. Uh, the Beatles, Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack, a lot of Broadway musicals. I mean, just certain songs you would... On vinyl? Uh, like, and usually, yeah, usually like a simple pop melody. Michael Jackson style 
pop music. But I mean, Stevie you're Wonder. All, oh yes. That I mean that I remember like those melodies as a young kid. It, this is a funny memory. Being on an airplane and with the headphones, getting to choose between a few channels and the bad sound quality, like yeah, different yeah. styles of music, and just waiting for <laughs> the one song to come on. And I wouldn't know who the artist was or what song it was, but it was the melody. And it, w- it would be the corniest stuff. It would be like, uh, you know, a Richard Marks song, a New Kids on the Block <laughs> song. Yeah. But the melody was stuck in my head. And, uh, and it was powerful, you know, it's like, oh, I got to hear that again because, or it was even, you know, that the, the United theme that the piano, I remember like, because that way we'd probably be flying United. And so that would be one of the songs that would play on repeat. It's funny you mentioned that. Cause I even remember there was always one comedy channel. Do you remember that? Uh, no, I forget what airline, but this is an old memory that give you the headset. You get about 11 channels. And one of them was comedy. That's cool. And it would just be like seven bits in a loop, but I could even remember some of the great bits. All right, so... All right, tangent. Earliest yes. comedy you heard. Mine, I'll go first, Jackie Mason. And I had, a, I had two cassette tapes, Jackie Mason and Woody Allen. Could you remember any of the bits? Not a one. Not one? Not one. Well, that's how I feel after a good comedy show. When I leave a comedy club, I can't remember one bit. I would listen to those on repeat. I wouldn't even understand what they were talking about, probably. I was so young, but it was they were getting laughs. I, I was so drawn to what they were doing. Oh, I know for a fact. For me, it was Steve Martin. My mom had a vinyl. Cool. Actually, in 1981... Um, when my mom was pregnant with me, they tried to laugh me out, you know, to try to induce labor. Oh, really? Yeah. So Steve Martin was in San Francisco. They went live to see him, <laughs> you know, and this is when he was, you know, the King Tut bit, the arrow going wow. through his head. He has a great book, Born Standing Up. You would love it. it. Oh, you did? Yeah. It was so good. And there's a lot of Bay Area history. But yeah, Steve Martin's vinyl and Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby yeah. on vinyl. Sure. These comedy, um... Recordings, they were laugh out loud, but it's funny because I can't remember any of the bits either. I just know I was satisfied and loved it. Okay. But some of the comedy I like today is so visual, I don't think it would sound that great to me. I kind of need to watch comedy. I listen to a lot of comedy. And, 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 you know, what's interesting is certain, certain, maybe it's certain comics or it's just certain records or performances. I prefer audio, and you know, and I'll, I'll download them to my phone, and when I'm traveling, I'll listen to that like I would a podcast, just an entire stand-up record, because especially a comic that has smart material that's all tied together, it really mm-hmm. makes sense to listen to it in its entirety, versus a shuffle channel, no, that's where true. you're that's getting good. bits. That's actually a great approach. I realize some of the comics that are great for audio, it yeah. almost is just what I get out of podcasts. Yeah. Like, these are great thinkers. Right. But... Like, I'm reading Sebastian Maniscalco's book right now. Yeah. His stuff would not translate if you were just listening. He's so physical on yeah. stage. He's selling every bit with his mannerisms. But I'm sure he, I'm sure there is an audiobook that he reads <laughs> that would be engaging. For Sebastian? Yeah. Perhaps. Okay, so I was going to ask, you mentioned all these great artists, you know, from Ray Charles to the Beatles, but what about your own discovery... Oh. I'm talking about yourself. Sure. Well, you discovered you know, oh, right. it and the light bulb went so off. We jump, well, we jump back to that time when you remember me with long hair and a Kurt Cobain t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, I think the reason I differentiated is because still in my mind, there's a difference between... There's a difference in the way that music moved me and was important to me versus just having a simple connection with a song like I do and I continue to have with pop music. Mm-hmm. But specifically uh, at age 14, 15, 
Kurt Cobain had just killed himself. So it was this music that I had started to get interested oh, in. that's right. And was very powerful to me in tapping into my teenage angst. You were rebellious. I sure. was a little bit rebellious. And that music definitely hit, you know, just hit it right on the money. And... Uh, you know, and then Kurt Cobain kills himself. And so that, that caused like disillusionment. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, the way you were describing your favorite music, it's my, uh, initial reaction to a band like Nirvana and a lot of those, uh, hard rock bands at the time in my, in my teenage years, uh, they definitely, I have a different sort of connection with those groups than I do with just general you know, like pop music. You know what's so funny is, you know, Coles sells these graphic tees. Yes. So you do still see kids wearing Nirvana shirts. Sure. A little different than it used to be. But their music's still on the radio. Yeah. I didn't always know that Nirvana, when I was listening to them as a 14-year-old, would be this timeless sound, almost Led Zeppelin-like. Like, when sure. we're in our 70s, we're going to hear All Apologies, Heart Shaped Box, I guess Polly so. on the radio. I didn't know in the time that, like, Kurt Cobain was going to become this legendary force. And I always wonder, like... Those that go out like that, yeah. if that adds to the allure. Oh, of course. His suicide. These documentaries they've made about Kurt Cobain are fascinating. Sure. Because we knew so little at the time. But so He's a particularly strange one. Uh, I mean, from the documentaries. Yes, if, he if is. If you've seen them. I mean, he's, he's, a, dark, he's a dark character. I know, because it's told honestly. Sometimes I want the documentary to tell me something different. Right. But you realize the dark underbelly you right. know, of what these guys are experiencing. So you, I meet you in 1995-96, and you're already a guy who understands how to play the electric guitar. You have equipment. You were playing Nirvana songs. You were playing Green Day, Offspring, Weezer, sure. Pearl Jam, all these That's groups it. I like. And you were able to teach me. I remember on the field at Terra Linda High, you would just teach me where to put my fingers. Nice. And I was just able to play a riff. That's the only shit I can still play on the guitar. But sure. it comes from you. So I'm where, not much better. Where did it come from? Are you all self-taught? Did you take mostly guitar lessons? Self-ta- mostly self-taught. I mean, yeah, if you want to... Uh, the origins of my of my training start with piano lessons that I hated, that my mom forced me to take. I and hated I never, them too. never practiced for years, though. And, you know, I think one of the reasons I disliked it so much is it was classical training with right, serious right. teachers. And even at the time, I had... Um, I had the insight to say to my mom, you know, I want to be just learning some Beatles songs or, you know, some blues piano. And she was like, no, you know, if you're going to play, you got to learn the, the unfinished symphony. William or, Tell yeah, Overture. Or you, you just, you need to be classically trained. That's and then, it was and then for later me too. you can play, you know, you can go into the rock and roll stuff. And, uh, I think that was a mistake on her part because... Uh, it totally turned me off to it and I never practiced and I, I still to this day I can barely read music and can't play piano at all. Yeah, but in those days, so if you were going to find what you did love, would you like press rewind on a Nirvana tape? Would you listen okay. with your ear and say that's the A chord? Well, okay, so... Or that's well, a bar code. Right, so after piano lessons, what I... The, the first instrument I got was a bass guitar and at, uh, in my class we had a guitar player and a drummer and we need, and I wanted to be in a band, ah. and we needed a bass player. So I got myself a bass. I did take some lessons. So I had a teacher, uh, you know, show me the basics, showed me. And what what we would do in the lessons is I would, 
Uh, I wish I knew his name. I'd give him a shout out, uh, <laughs> but I don't remember. Um, and I would I would bring songs. I would bring a uh, at the time it was the bass guitar, so it was Green Day and Primus and Flea from the Chili Peppers. So Green Day. So these are yes, that was one of the first bass lines I ever learned. Longview. Longview. Yes, you taught me that. And so I mean, at the time, yeah, between Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Green Day's Dookie. I mean, really, those two records. And then Rage Against the Machine, their self-titled record, I learned those in their entirety. And I had a teacher show me to play those songs. And, you know, I think naturally I was able to play by ear pretty well. So it didn't take me long to be able to... And then watching how the guitar teacher was just listening to the record and by ear figuring them out without having to look any tab or... So you do have an ear. You've developed an ear. Yeah, I I always... I, I was always good by ear. Definitely. Like even in my piano lessons, I would never, I'd be pretending to read the music, but I just remembered how to play the song from last time and Mm -hmm. I just had it memorized. So I was always just playing by ear. Well, just going through your history. So I think Earache My Neck, you were telling me that at this time, like in the 90s, Marin County actually did have some very talented bands. Yes. And then fast fast forward to high school, I'm at this point... From bass guitar, I quickly got an electric guitar, and you know it's an easy transition. And I, I was learning like you were, you know, just and all that music is so easy to learn. Uh, the Nirvana stuff, simple power chords, not hard to play. It's so powerful though, an electric guitar versus like the acoustic that my mom had from the old, oh. you know, folk days. But it's played the same way. It's played the same way. You're right. Although the nylon strings were easier on my fingers. I remember picking up your electric guitar. I was like sliced. Like uh, you got to develop the calluses. But so as as I've known you, you've been in many bands. I do want to get to Judgment Day. I do have questions about okay. that. But fill in the gap. So Tom's Pharmacy. Okay. So yeah. So, sorry, Mom and Dad. So just to wrap what I, I wrap up where on the track I was going. So it was bass guitar guitar. My dad in his early fifties in like a midlife crisis gets himself a drum kit. So of course now I'm learning. The That's drums. what I was gonna ask. So the first time you ever sat in front of a drum kit. Um, and learned it was because your dad in his 50s put one in the house? Yes, there was a drum kit in our garage. Really? That was he was learning to play. And of course, it became my drum set. And, and he, he continued to play and continues to play to this day. That's right. I love it. Uh, but that, that quickly became my drum set and my favorite instrument. Because just because it's so fun and loud and and awesome, and it's probably a therapeutic release. Not to get too deep about drums, no, but when you're beating the shit out of the skins, my friend, yeah, it does something. No, drums are the coolest. Drums You've heard Bill coolest. Burr talk about playing the drums. It's uh, like truly his outlet. So that is what I was going to ask because I did learn how to play the drums in seventh grade yes. because of the Minot family. There you go, Felix Minot, his dad Christoph. They were the one family. Unbelievable musicians. All Unbelievable. Around. And they used to have us all over. How old are you in seventh grade? Twelve? Sure. And they would really teach us just enough to do a concert. The family, they were a French cool. family. They'd have relatives in town from France. And they said, whatever you have, a clarinet, a French horn. Wow. Christophe would be on bass. Yeah. Micah Julius would be on drums. Felix on the piano. And this memory, it's so vivid in my mind because they simplified everything. And mm. I think that's what music has to be. And here's how Christophe... Felix's dad taught me. He said, on the hi-hat, think of it as four. One, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. I want to know if this is how you learn too. Yeah. And then on the first, hit that bass with your foot, yeah. the bass pedal. On sure. the second, just hi-hat. Yes. On the third, hi-hat with snare. Yeah. On the fourth, just hi-hat. That's the first beat. That took me 45 seconds to learn. And as I... It's almost like powerful. It's magic. To see if you could learn that, you can actually keep a beat, play the drums, and look kind of cool for a moment. Absolutely. And I'm impressed 
you learned it so fast. It, it took me weeks in the garage to get that coordination. I knew what I was supposed to do. I, I was not quick to the drums. You weren't. I was determined oh. to learn to get that coordination. So that was not a uh, an immediate, easy instrument for me. Well, just like Nintendo, I plateaued right there. <laughs> I never got better at anything over Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. Just the classic, what is it called, a 4B? I don't know. Is there a name for that? I don't know. I don't have a clue, but when I've seen you play throughout the years, your skills have progressed because you're one of the few friends, if not the only friend, that has fully committed mm -hmm. periods of their life to music. So even as you went to UC Santa Cruz and your friends were with the Lost and Found generation, mm -hmm. a hip-hop group, weren't you playing with them a little bit? Sure, that's how it started, yeah. It was just like playing guitar on making rap beats and then... I thought they were good. I started recording them rapping, yeah. They, they were, were really good. They were really good. And so the San Francisco Chronicle... They did write a story on your band that you and I both agreed was like your closest thing to having potential to making it. Judgment Day was Judgment a cellist, yeah. an electric cello, an electric violin, and John Bush on drums. Right. And you met these guys at Santa Cruz. Yeah. And in the article in the San Francisco Chronicle, one of the brothers said, he hit drums harder than anybody we've ever seen, <laughs> and it gave us metal cred. So they brought you in. It was That's actually right. a very good article. Good quote. Um, so they brought you in and... How many years was Judgment Day together? For over a decade. So that would have been uh, when I started playing with them. It was like 2002. And we were banned until 2013. How? And this is a question that I asked you 10 years ago. And I'm going to ask you again. Because it almost started a fight between us. You were so disappointed in me for my answer. <laughs> and I said, how do you define making it in music? Oh. And you said, well, you tell me what you think making it means. Uh -huh. And I had just seen Modest Mouse on Saturday Night Live, yeah. a band. And I said, if you're the musical guest on Saturday Night Live, yeah. you know, just someone that doesn't know shit about the musical world, you've right. made it. And for some reason, your response was like, oh, what a shitty answer. <laughs> you were so upset. We were driving across the Richmond Bridge. You had picked me up at the airport. I was yeah. living in San Diego. And I was such a fan of uh -huh. your music, Judgment Day. And I go, John... Your band's going to make it, but how do you know when you made it? Right. How do you answer that question today? Right. I mean, outside of, you know, saying a tower record sales well, and music think, videos. Again, my instinct would be to turn the question on you. What do you, how do you define making it? Because that's what any, everyone would have to determine for themselves. There isn't, certainly I guess, isn't a fixed de yeah. definition. I guess fame, so, where enough people will come to see you and you could uh -huh. sell out some venues and actually make a living. Right. Um, playing the music. Those would be the top, uh, yeah. Those That's my probably, new answer. That's those, my new answer. Those are the top two reasons, I would agree, is to make a living and then the fame and the celebrity that comes along with that. And uh, at this point in my life, definitely making a living, obviously, mm -hmm. would, would be the goal. And for me, that would be making it. Is it still a goal? Because you're still in a band. Yeah. You'll always be in a band. I'll always do it. At, at this point, it feels like a hobby. It's a distant, distant cry from being anything professional. Uh, I'm open to that, and I'd love to. Well, you were in a cover band for No Effects called Bro Effects, and the night I saw you guys, I was like, "This shit is quality." Like, I know yeah. it's kind of tongue-in-cheek to be a cover band of a punk band you liked when you were 17, right? But the well, hey, quality on stage was so good, I can't decipher yeah. between the musicians that make it and the musicians that don't. I remember being at Gordon Biersch in the Sky on the Patio. To me, yeah. he seemed like he was better than Ed Sheeran. He was just playing a guitar and singing. And I go, I don't understand why some people make it yeah. in music and other guys are playing on the Gordon Biersch patio. And I'm fully entertained. Well, that, it certainly is different. That, that, it's tricky when you talk about 
the quality of the musicianship in terms of chances of making it because there's increasingly not a correlation between those two. Is that sad? Sure it is. Yeah. There's definitely a devaluation in the ability to play an instrument really well. I mean, you look at classical musicians who are struggling to make a living. I mean, the top, like the best musicians on the planet, it's hard. Most of them end up teaching and giving private lessons or teaching at school. That's true. And, and you know, and music programs are getting cut. There's fewer of those. So, I mean, it's, it's incredibly hard, one, to make a living in the music industry for a, for a lot of different ways, whether you're a musician or on the business side of it. And but my question is why? Like why well, did it go like... back to the go back if you go back to the origin of commercial music? Yeah, no one. I, I I'm not an expert on this, but I imagine no one was at the time more famous or successful than the Beatles. You didn't have to be good at your instrument to be in the Beatles. So I mean, those happen to be great musicians. Mm -hmm. But for kids being inspired by the Beatles, they could go uh, get a drum kit and a guitar. And within a few weeks, be playing all the Beatles songs. I mean, there it, it's it's a much different paradigm, if I'm using that word right, for than for a classical musician to spend decades being able to play the music that was written for them by the masters. Yeah, well, and that, that which used to be valued as the best music. That should be a meritocracy. Classical music, like the best, should rise to the top. It should just be survival true. of the fittest. But that's I hear what you're saying about pop. You know, it's like the old 1950s stories of like a record producer came to see you at a little venue. He said, I like their sound. Let's give them a record deal. And one of the songs from that record would be played on the radio. Yeah. And that one song on the radio would launch you into arenas. And then all of a sudden you've made it. But holy shit, yeah. is it different today? No. Well, sure. It's different. But the end goal is the same. Is how quickly can you reach as many people as possible? and sell as many tickets and make as much money. Oh, so you have to embrace social media. If you're truly going to make it today, oh, of course. you have there's to. No, I mean, I suppose there's a way without it, but it's certainly difficult, and I, it, it would be a challenge to do it without social media. That's the easiest way. So when you were a member of this trio, string metal trio, and you guys would tour down to San Diego, I would always come see you. I remember the sound was, in my opinion, amazing. Yeah. And there would be people that came up to you after shows and just said, that was life-changing. And you were always too modest to receive a compliment. Yeah. You remember the Casbah, uh -huh. close to the airport in San Diego? Sure, of course. I just loved watching the people taking your music because it was loud. It was angry. Yeah. You always give me earplugs and you'd say, stand back. Yeah. I know metal's not your thing. Metal's not my thing, but I genuinely enjoyed it. And then I think the reason that it all crumbles was personality conflicts. Yeah. That's yeah, got to be differences. creative differences. Yeah. Is that something, when you go back, you go, huh, maybe you could have gotten past, or if you were ever a part of a group in the future and you said mm -hmm. the sound is so pure and the sound is actually so good, yeah. do you think you'd be able to overlook personality that's a, conflicts? That's a good question. I, I don't, well, it depends. It depends on the band and the situation and the people. But um, in that case, no, I don't, th there was nothing, I, I have zero regrets or zero thoughts that it could have been any different that I, I, there was no way we could have stayed together because as you say when the sound is so good and we had lost I th I'm, in my opinion like I was no longer satisfied with the sound so then it was like why are we doing this oh. we had lost you know it's one thing too because plenty of bands don't get along 
Um, but if they're if the fans like it and and they believe in the music, they stay together. So the chemistry off stage is not necessary to translate on stage. A band can be a bunch of enemies and still play sure, together really well. Sure, you know, and and a lot of this I feel like I could throw in your direction, both with your talk radio stuff and sports in general. Sure, the similarities because. Can teammates and coaches and players that don't like each other win championships? Of course. Jeff Kent and Barry Bonds. There you go. Or you go back to the A's teams of the 70s that won all those championships. I heard that they would brawl in the clubhouse. And then something happened on the field. That's right. But I guess if you have creative differences in music, that's different than personality conflicts. That's right. And so I don't know if this is a perfect analogy, but yeah, in baseball, it's like, okay, you don't have to get along. But if the throws, if you're no longer catching the throws that are being made, okay, what are we doing? Now Now we're just losing games. Exactly. So as you're with Judgment Day, I think the idea of on tour, whenever someone says we're on tour, it has this glamorous sound to it. But could you describe for the here we go listeners, just the gritty life, the gritty experience of being on tour at its lowest level? I'm not talking (laughs) about, you know, how uh, Pearl Jam goes on tour. No, we we only did the lowest levels. (laughs) So so you buy a van or something, right? And you set up everywhere. But I want you to describe city to city selling your own merch, and just how sure. tough that experience can sure. be. Well, you know, there's different ways to do it. Um, a lot of bands do enjoy themselves a little more by investing money that they're going to lose. But in, in a van, in renting motel rooms, mm-hmm. uh, in, com- in things for comfort to enjoy themselves, we did not. From the beginning, we were uh, we wanted to save as much money as possible and make as much money as possible. And so that meant kind of cutting all corners. Our first tours were... Uh, the three of us in my Scion, if you can imagine. We didn't have a van. Uh, it was just the three of us in a little four-seater. And uh, I would borrow drums mm-hmm. from, you know, we, we would arrange these tours up to, say, Seattle and back. Five to seven shows. I certainly booked a lot of shows, too, and I don't at all remember where or how our initial shows were booked. But just to give you an idea of what they were like, it would it would be the three of us in a little sedan driving <laughs> all the way up to, uh, or, you know, let's say we routed it so we drove to Reading and then played at a coffee shop for three people, sold one CD, and then the, the girl, <laughs> the high school girl who invited us to play there had room on her floor at her parents' house, and that's where we slept that night. These are the good stories in retrospect. I mean, when you were in the midst of it, you're like, holy shit, this is rock bottom. But I love hearing it. And you're literally... excited. You're talking about three people in that coffee shop. Literally. Have you ever played for three people? We played for less. Absolutely. And then, okay. <laughs> we played for less. Next day, you drive up to Medford, Oregon. And I've heard play, of Medford. play for the bartender. And, like, literally, <laughs> the only person... Nobody. Nobody's in the room. There's another band. Wait, wait. What if the bartender goes to the bathroom? <laughs> well, there's no one in the room. Then that's a fucking rehearsal. That's not a concert anymore. There were plenty of rehearsals on stage. That's for so good. Plenty. Now, on the flip side, because I even have this question written, what was the biggest crowd you ever played for? Uh, in your entire life? Okay. Possibly... Uh, one of the biggest crowds I remember playing for, if this counts, we got to play um, at the Hate Street Fair one year. That does not count. So I was at... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That'll if, count. If, if you imagine Hate Street and Masonic, uh-huh. uh, all the way down to Golden... Looking, facing Golden Gate Park, all people, shoulder to shoulder. Wow. We looked it up. I think there was like 10,000 people. And obviously not all of them were looking at our stage, but at least 300 people back all watching us, you know, and so that was close to a thousand people. Wow. Yeah. Does it change the performance? 
playing for one bartender versus playing for 10,000? Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I, I never remember being nervous to the point of un, being unable to perform. If anything, it fed into the performance. It gave me a reason to play well and to uh, enjoy myself because I was so inspired by the large crowd. You're kind of, uh, the more people that are into it, you know. You feed off of it. Absolutely. Well, Travis LeBoy, somebody that we both know from this town who played in the NFL, I asked him, what's it like when you came out for player introductions? And there were 70,000 people screaming, ready to see you sack a quarterback. And he vividly described it as a drug. He said, it filled me with so much adrenaline. You're almost in a blur. You still have to like remember, okay, how do I walk? Because football became muscle memory for him. But in those moments, like before the game starts, could you even imagine... The insane amount of adrenaline. Even to this day, when Mick Jagger gets out there in front of 70,000 people, I wonder if he still feels it like he did 30 years ago, 40 years ago. That's a very good question. You know, one other thing. By nature, I actually would have trouble getting on stage in front of that many people being the center of attention. That would make me really Most humans would. Something, absolutely. Something about being behind the drum set Gives me some anonymity and some protection because when I would get off stage, people would immediately wouldn't recognize me. You know, I guess sometimes that might hurt my feelings, but for the most part, I was relieved that because it gave me more confidence uh, going up the next time where it's like, okay, you know, if I suck, no one's going to know as soon as I'm off stage, they won't remember that it was me. Oh, so like the most prototypical form of fame never appealed to you. The idea of I can't even go to a pizzeria, I can't go to a brewery, I can't even go to the mall because I will be mobbed. Like, to be honest, there are people that live their lives that way. Sure. No, that that doesn't appeal to me. No. I don't don't know if that's exactly where I was going with that, but that, that kind of fame does not at all appeal to me. Not being able to live a normal life. I mean, I like how, uh, I think it's David Letterman who says, you know, like, he likes the f- being famous because everything feels like a small town. Oh, that's a great quote. Every, you know, yeah. and no matter where he is, people people know Hi, him. Hi, Dave, at the gas station. Yeah, I mean, so that, sure, that would appeal to me if, if people were relatively cool with you and you had a nice, rela- you know, if that, if that was the experience being famous, that sounds great. But if there's any, you know, if, there, if there's anything negative about those interactions, ugh. It's true, you always have to be ready to. Like, you never know what photo is going to surface of you. If you reach that level, especially yeah. now with everybody who has the ability to just take a photo of you, you're also unique in the sense, here I am calling you unique because you're not on social media, but you are the type of individual that can enjoy things alone and there's no emptiness to it. So I can actually remember when I first had to delve into this, but you have no problem going to a movie theater alone, correct? Sure. I, I In the larger scheme of things, I don't know if it's fair to say that I find no emptiness in it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, absolutely. But also, I, I'm an introvert. I like being alone. I have no problem going to things alone. But here's the deal: we once had tickets to see Nick Swartzen live at the Masonic. Sure. I bailed on you last minute. You still went. Yes. You had a fine time without absolutely. me. Absolutely. You've gone to Giants games alone, correct? That's definitely. You bring your radio. You bring your seeds. Your peanuts. Right. You've gone to concerts alone. All the time. These are things that most people don't do. I think this makes you I unique. Think- who, who goes to a ball game alone, a comedy club alone, a concert alone? Every time I've done something like that, yeah. I honestly feel like it's a character-building experience. Huh. The first time ever, dining alone. 
At yes. first, that sounded Actually, lonely. Now I love it. Interesting. I, I was having this conversation yesterday. It depends. Sitting in a bar. Yes. I love. I love. I love a table for one. <laughs> I still have trouble <laughs> with table for one. Why are you going to a table for one? Just sit at the bar. I'm just well. Okay. <laughs> table for one. And let's just say there is no bar. <laughs> oh, then pick a restaurant with a bar. Sure. Just because there's more action. So we're to look on the at. same page because the person I was talking to was fine with table for one. Well, here's the deal. When I was, I think, a senior in high school, you remember Mr. Nice? Does that sure. ring a bell? Of course. We had a bet. I forget what the bet was, probably something with March Madness. And the bet was breakfast. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you take the other person out to breakfast. I won the bet. And he goes, here's the money. Go out to a diner, bring a newspaper. And I said, that sounds awful. I thought we were going to go to breakfast together. And he said, no, here's the money. Go find a diner. Go find a stool, go find a newspaper, get some pancakes, get an omelet, get some coffee. You'll see. He, like, inspired me to do my first alone experience. He was absolutely right. I bet. So to this day, going to breakfast alone, having coffee with the newspaper, I guess, which would be now the phone. Um, And then Micah's wedding in Poughkeepsie. I got there the night before when all of you guys were at a restaurant, and I Googled comedy clubs in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mm Mm-hmm. 15 steps away from the hotel we were staying That's at. Right. So I went alone to a comedy club, which is a really interesting experience. That was your first time. Yeah, but I actually think you need to go to comedy clubs with somebody else. Interesting. Just because I think laughter is contagious. Sure. And I was there like, they probably thought I was some comedy critic from the New York Times or something, just sitting there in the back shadows yeah. alone. But I've never been to a ball game alone. I mean, yeah. media box doesn't count. And a concert alone, I don't think I would ever do. How about this scenario at a comedy club? I've experienced this with a friend who isn't as into it as you are. Okay. Right? (laughs) I would rather be alone and free to laugh at what I want Mm -hmm. than, you know, feeling guilty or uncomfortable laughing because the person I'm with looks miserable because they... Oh, I've never had that experience. Have you not? Someone looks miserable? That would take away. You're right. That would take away from my experience. That's right. That's right. There's, And that's entirely why I'm okay with doing most things alone is because I've had... I've had lots of experiences that weren't fun with other people doing those things. You know, you go to a movie with somebody who doesn't seem happy with the movie. You know, I'm not going to enjoy myself. And maybe I'm just hypersensitive to that. But if the person I'm with isn't enjoying the concert, I don't have fun. So so that's why I would rather go by myself. But you took the negative way of viewing it, which is still accurate. But can it be enhanced? All these things, if you went with the biggest baseball fan to the Giants game, the biggest comedy fan to the comedy club, the biggest, you know, foodie to a great restaurant. You make it sound like I don't go to things with people. No, I know, I know. But you're probably one of the first people I've ever known that has a fine time doing things alone. And I almost feel like, just to take this in a different direction, there are societal standards of things to do alone Mm. versus things that, you know, are meant to be done together. Like, New Year's Eve. People get all sad if they're alone on New Year's Eve. Sure. I don't know. Like, you're one of my friends that is not married, nor do you feel in a rush. Right. I love that about you. Most people reach an age where they feel like, now I'm rushing to get to this finish line called being married or being eternally committed or being a dad. Sure. People feel that natural pressure. You don't. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I think if I were single, I'd be... I'd be nervous. I mean, the older you get, the harder it is. The the older you get being single, that's tough. I mean, I'm in a relationship, so I'm very thankful for that. But you've never felt the need to accelerate it. um, I mean, beyond what you feel, but because society places standards on couples. This is the age you're supposed to commit. Sure. You know, and that's commonly 
accepted as a gender difference. You, in general, men aren't as eager to get married as married as women. I mean, little boys aren't fantasizing about their weddings. <laughs> that's true, right? No, that's I mean, true. It's all in my experience. It's in general, men are being pressured into getting married by their partner, and obviously there are plenty of exceptions. But well, the biological reasons that a woman would want to speed things up, I get. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's funny. A little kid in kindergarten just envisioning his wedding. Oh, I'm gonna be the best, the most dapper groom. And hey, I mean, I'm I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure there are little boys who think that way. But uh, yeah, no, I don't think that that was us. So. I'm going to go rapid fire with you. You ready? Sure. All right. Here's some rapid questions for you before I want to discuss this article and then get you out of here. Um, something on your bucket list. Something like big, not just, you know, a little thing like I've always wanted to visit Modesto in the fall. Right. But what is something big on your bucket list? Here you are in your mid 30s that you say before I die, this I need to accomplish. That's a great question. I mean, so, you know, there, there are things that I think sound awesome. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll rail off a few of those. So I really like the idea of a long motorcycle ride uh, across Australia. With what or, bike? Uh, you know, it depends on the ride. You know, if, if it's an off-road incorporated trip, you've got to have a big touring bike that can do all the off-road stuff. Or, you know, if it's just on a Harley across America. Uh, That's that, a good answer. Sure. And, and now, would you be doing this alone or with some other bikers? I, I would, if I could, I would love to do it with other people, but I would do it alone if no one wanted to go with me. I know something on my bucket list. I do want to make a documentary. Okay. And I don't even know if that's full length. I don't even know if I would pursue pushing it to become like produced and mainstream, but I'd love to pick a topic. Yeah. And with a few other wannabe filmmakers, actually make a documentary. Yeah. Just because I love watching them so much. Sure. It's almost what this podcast is. I love listening to them. It's kind of an attainable goal, speaking to a mic. Sure, sure. Well, you wrote a book. Now you're making a podcast. You can make a documentary. What else? There we go. No, I mean, maybe one of these things can pop. Like, you heard me talk about Peter Lavolsi. All right, this this might be a loaded question. But loaded how, up. How much... How much desire is there in you to get back on the radio, live radio? Zero. Really? I'm surprised by that answer as well. Huh. But the idea, if I had a show tomorrow, Mm -hmm. of discussing baseball for the first hour, commercial breaks, dealing with other people's personalities, you know, and what angle they wanted to take, a boss, the pressure of ratings. Uh, You know, if your ratings are great, you're a good host. If your ratings are bad, you're a bad host. That's not an exaggeration of how you're viewed on the air. It's yeah. that simple. What would a dream job be in sports media? For me, years ago, you know, I could give you an answer. But like honestly, right now, I don't feel any emptiness not being on the radio mm-hmm. anymore. It's a good question because I always thought I would yearn for it. Mm-hmm. Speaking into this little mic like we're doing right now, that fills the void. I almost can look back and be at peace that I had that chapter of my life. Yeah. Like I don't need every endeavor to last forever. Yeah. I think if you say, you know what, I had that chapter of my life. It's actually good advice if anybody's dealing with a breakup. You'll one day be at peace and appreciate that you had that relationship. Yeah. Or if you miss a certain thing about your life, just be happy that they came in and out of your life. And there was a purpose. There was a purpose to doing sports radio for 12 years. But I get so much fulfillment out yeah. of teaching right now. Right. If I didn't, I'd probably be so depressed and want to be on the radio. But professionally, I don't feel anything's missing. And the idea of radio... I think sometimes was always more fun than the execution of it. Like really, talking about batting averages? Right now I want to talk to you about Judgment Day and an article we read. So this fulfills every single audio need that I had in radio. Okay. 
This little mic. This little Here's mic. Here's a question. Yeah. Would this mic need to be plugged in? <laughs> None of this is being recorded? <laughs> Not at all. Fuck. <laughs> Holy shit. Okay. Um, here's another quick question for you. Would you rather have every single friend of yours see your search history on Google for the last three weeks oh or have a billboard of you butt naked in San Francisco for five straight days? Once again, your options are, and you can't say neither, and you can't say both. <laughs> no one would say both. All right. Everyone who you know sees your search history on Google for the last three weeks yeah. or a billboard of you full frontal butt naked is on a billboard in San Francisco for five straight days. Neither of those cause me immediate panic. <gasps> they might they might be <laughs> <laughs> I'm panicking asking the question. Neither yeah. I, I don't I'm sure I'm sure there's some problematic Google searches that don't immediately come to mind. And I'm sure there's something about there's something about <laughs> problematic. <laughs> I'm sure there's something about seeing uh, my nude body and knowing everyone's looking at it, but I immediately, I don't, that neither of them are causing me panic. Folks, this Throw is the first up. time we're going to hear both for a <laughs> would you rather. Give me both. Well, what about just medical things when it comes to Google history? It sounds better though. No, to, to I, I do think, I do think the nude billboard would be less terrible. I would take, in general. Yeah, I would take the nude billboard. Yeah. We Google so much shit. Throughout the day, how many times do you Google something? Give uh, or take. Over, under five? Where are you at? Yeah, five to ten. Five to ten. Isn't that funny? Pete Holmes has the bit, like, it doesn't change our lives. Yeah. He goes, you know, well, but you Google argue, something and it doesn't even change well, your life. Well, you know, I, I would argue I, that's a great bit and I have no issue with it. But I think there's simultaneously an argument that I make constantly, which is that my favorite part of technology is the immediate access to information. Where I don't need, I don't need the, the touch screen, you know, the, the smartphone necessarily. Just access to the internet to look up information and not have to have things memorized. For me, in my life, that mm -hmm. has that greatly has made an impact. You love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. I when I was a kid, similar to that Pete Holmes bit, it's about remembering. Uh, you know, something about Tom Petty. Yeah, I know. You know where's Tom Petty from? Right, he goes, and now from? you just look it up and you see Florida and it doesn't change your day at all. Uh, but and at the same, and, and that's a great <laughs> bit. And that's a, that's a great bit and it's accurate. <laughs> and it's accurate in, in certain circumstances. But for me, like, it used to drive me nuts trying to remember a celebrity's name as a kid. And, like, immediately it's quenched. I've, I've developed systems for, like, remembering names that I want to remember where I, you know, repeat, I mm -hmm. repeat them and look at them again. Uh, but I feel like my memory is better and I'm more confident in my accuracy because I'm constantly checking the, we're, the accuracy be we're becoming online. less sharp then for retaining things. If we well, just maybe, rely on maybe, that little thing okay. in your pocket, I'm sure humanity overall probably is, mm -hmm. but me personally, I've never, I don't have a good memory. I, I'm not that sharp. So it, I, it sharpens <laughs> me. It gives me an advantage oh, gotcha. over other people. You ever watch black mirror? Of course. What do you think the underlying theme of the show is? If you just had to give sure, the I, synopsis, sure. like which every I, episode, which I've had to constantly or, or a number of times, just, the dystopian future, you know, every episode is some sort of dystopian future. Not too distant about, future, right? Not, well, yeah, I, I suppose. I, I hadn't really thought about that. And they don't always make it clear. But sure, 
Yeah, a not too distant future. That's right. Um, and what can go wrong? You know, where where possibly where we're headed in this world. All based on what though? Technology advancing technology. us in a dangerous direction. All about technology. Have you ever thought about the name of the show, Black Mirror? Go get into it. It sounds cool. Well, I thought about this. So it's a reflection on us, a mirror, right? Yeah. But a black mirror is yeah. this dark direction the human race that is going. Light. Instead of reflecting it. <laughs> right. No, but I think like black anything, right? Yeah. Black Sunday. Black mirror, it represents this dark side of what we're doing with these phones and the technology. Sure. And soon they will be just thinking for us, interacting for us. Yeah. I don't know. That's, it gets really deep, that show. And I think it's a horror. Do you? Would uh, you say Black Mirror is a straight horror? It depends on series? the episode. I oh, suppose. it scares the fuck out of me. I can't even watch some of those episodes. I, it's true. It is true. But especially if I'm in the mood for something dark, God, nothing is as satisfying as that show. Speaking of dark, did you see Three Billboards in Ebbing, no, Missouri? I can't wait. It's so dark. I just Good. saw it last night. Good. It's too dark. It changed my mood. It gave me insomnia. I'm wow. so affected by good writing. Yeah, you're sensitive. The performances. I mean, it's Woody Harrelson, Peter Dinklage, Francis McDormand. There are some heavyweights in this cast. It does happen occasionally. In general, sad music and dark movies and TV shows comfort me. And, and I leave away what? feeling better. In general. I there, can't shake it. There are exceptions, though, and they're not always dark films, which is which is interesting. And the only one I can think of, and I don't remember exactly why, and if I rewatched it, it might be fine, but what really gave me a bad taste for days afterwards was this 30 Days of Summer, this romantic comedy. Oh, does he get, like, phased out? That one? <sighs> Where his daughter can't, can't even see him, or is no. the John Hamm one? No, it's about it's about like a Joseph Gordon-Levitt young man being oh, getting his heart broken. I thought you were talking about Black Mirror still. No, no, no. Oh, I loved that movie, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. I think so. Yeah. What did it do for you? It it, it put, stayed with it you. Put, yes, it it really made me sad and upset. Oh, because it's not happily ever after. Well, I don't know why. I don't know why. Well, they don't end up together, right? I, I don't remember the specifics. I just remember, like, the way the characters, I think, were manipulating each other. Something that, like, the the reflection of humanity that that movie was showing really upset me. Dude, that's funny. Of all movies. Because I, I saw it and I liked it. It almost made me feel I know, good. It's a strange one. You're wired differently, pal. <laughs> you are wired differently. Well, this idea of happily ever after. Yeah. 90% of the movies, right? 95% of the movies we see? Yeah. I struggled with that when I was writing this book. Like, whatever phase of life I was in, if I was in a dark phase, like, shit wasn't going right, I was like, should I end this book, you know, with the character not getting the girl mm. and things going poorly? I think Americans, or maybe just moviegoers and book readers, are wired to want happily ever after. Sure, and I and I think, as we've seen in a lot of DVD extras, there are alternate endings. The, it's they Most of these films are probably written both ways, and it's a creative decision made later on, close to the end, which way are we going to end this? It's weird, though, because it's not indicative of real life. That's why documentaries are my flavor. Like, documentaries sometimes end, and you're just, like, yeah. <laughs> feeling sorrowful. Yeah. But documentaries, I would argue, can be made uh, in either direction. Most stories can oh, be sure, told, sure. happy or sad. What's well, one of your favorites ever? Can you even think of one off the top a of your head? documentary? Yeah, just like a doc that you go, holy shit, that was well, well done. Well, I'll tell you, specific to music, we're, I think we're still in this golden age of music documentaries. And the first ones I remember seeing that blew me away, and there may, I'm sure, were great earlier ones, but... Uh, the recent one, starting with Pearl Jam 20, this Cameron Crowe film, and mm -hmm. then that Bob Marley 
film. And I saw it. Marley? Eagle, yes. Wait, wait. Stop for a second. That's yes. my favorite musical documentary of all time. Okay. But it's a history lesson, too, on Rastafarianism, right. the history of Jamaica, right. Bob himself. There's no bigger rock so star. I, the argument I make is that prior to these films, uh, or that time period, whenever it was, mid-2000s, there hadn't been music documentaries of that caliber. And now there are mm. lots, and I love it. I love it. Well, yeah, The Doors, Bob Weir, The Grateful Dead. Yes. There was a good that one. That was good. I didn't see The Eagles one. I oh, heard that was good. History of the Eagles is great. Did you see the Jimi Hendrix one? I think I watched I it on like KPBS or something. I think I did see the Hendrix one. Janis Joplin was incredible. Oh, my God. That incredible. was really good. But the Marley one, it's actually three hours. It felt like 15 minutes. Yes. It was so good. I could not believe how good that was. No. The Whalers. I'm mean, just seeing... Documentaries in general are so good now. Some of my favorite films. Icarus. Tell me you saw Icarus. I did won, not. Won an Oscar. That won the Oscar, though. Ugh. Yeah. I was going to get into a few other topics, but I almost feel good ending with talking about music docs. Sure. I was going to get into, have you ever been to Marine World Africa, USA when you were a little kid? In Vallejo. Do you have yeah. any memories? Sure. Okay. Orca shows. Yeah, yeah orca shows. Yeah. So there was a writer, Peter Hartlove, in the San Francisco Chronicle, yeah. who wrote about the earliest days in the 1960s yeah. when the Bay Area was gonna, you know, have a venue like this, right? Wildlife, you know, performing, not a zoo. No, we have to have the animals performing. Yeah. The very first location that they picked, Mill Valley. No kid. Right on Richardson Bay. Wow. But Marinites said, "Hell no, that's not the character of our city." And that's the 1960s. Uh-huh. So it started in Redwood City. Uh-huh. Which, you know, now Silicon Valley area. Yeah. And then in the 80s, it goes to Vallejo. Okay. But the idea, there's a picture of my sister and I with a monkey. Just like a monkey. It's yeah. a great photo. I don't even remember it. But I would sit in the splash zone for the orcas. I'd love the dolphin show. And in this article, it said they would have teens without any life vests take visitors on a tiger safari. Just through a river. And, you know, there were no lawyers, no liability. The right. 80s sometimes are laughable at how distant these memories seem. Hey, man, I, I remember driving around without seatbelts and a lot of crazy stuff in the 80s. We're so cautious now. But the documentary Blackfish, you've heard of it? Yeah. It shed some Haven't light on it, yeah. the psychosis that these killer whales go through. Right. So now it's being outlawed. You know, now animal rights activists sure. are finally saying, we should not have any of these places. Sure. Like SeaWorld. I was hoping you'd find that direction. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's now sickening to see like that we would take an animal from the great ocean, put it in a pool, yeah. and you know, have people in their wetsuits saying, say hello to Shamu. Right. And you know, everyone would applaud. But it was so sad to think about you know, what was actually happening, the backdrop yes. of Marine World Africa, USA. Of but course. This article was so funny, though. Yeah. I mean, just because it was so wrong. I wonder who the first human is it's to have that to idea. You know, it's, it's really hard to know oftentimes when you go to the zoo now, knowing mm. how much the animals are suffering. And sometimes it seems like they are and they aren't or it seems like they're content but they might not be it's i mean we can't get in their heads we don't know what's going right. on but it does not seem right everyone me. at the zoo tells you no we treat them well right. you know we study them we make sure that we're studying extinction and all these things but you're right you took a giraffe and you put it in a cage you took an elephant and you put them you know on stage yeah. for yeah. us i mean even at the san francisco zoo which is a fun day but there's there's always a darkness now when i go to the zoo i don't love the zoo like if you offered me you yeah. know to go to the zoo i'd say no nah, i'm good right i don't like it right and i had a pass to SeaWorld. uh-huh seriously when i lived in san diego i lived 11 minutes from SeaWorld. SeaWorld i had a season pass yeah well you That's know i didn't best. realize that these animals how naive was i i didn't realize the suffering that was happening i'll tell you what though 
I mean, there's always a line, right? I mean, you go see some cool reptiles. I mean, whether <laughs> whether or not it's it's because they're not suffering or it's because I care less about them exactly. and their feelings. You know, some stuff I'm excited to see and don't care that it's in a cage. Yeah. You know, like that, well, that's some cool stuff. That's like the vegetarian who goes, well, I do eat fish. It's like, why don't you give a shit about the feelings of a salmon? You care so much about a cow, and you even care about a chicken, but you don't give a shit about a trout? Uh, It's up to us. People have deemed what they value. I see both arguments, but in my mind, uh, certainly I care more about lambs, mammals, than I do fish. I mean, you pick up a fish, (laughs) does it look like... There's, have you ever had a connection with a fish? Never. Right? But I've never had a connection with a cow or a chicken uh, either. Except you have with dogs, and they are pretty freaking similar. That's true. If I was in China, though, where they eat dogs... <laughs> sure, I'm not... Would you take a bite? If you were in China, I when in Rome... Say, I can't say I never would. I, I know. I, I've Here, tell me all the animals you've eaten. Have you ever had ostrich? I don't think so. You ever had gator? I don't think so. You ever had bison? Yes. You have? Yeah. You ever had horse? I don't think so. <laughs> you ever had beagle? <laughs> Have you ever had venison? Deer? Uh, I don't know. That ain't bad. Okay. Have you ever had turkey? You're like, that's not extreme. <laughs> you ever had bologna? Um, you eat pretty healthfully, though, don't you? Uh, I try, but, you know, I mostly for me, diet-wise, it's about um, incorporating more healthy foods so that I can guilt-free just pig out when I want to. And I, I try to eat less meat, but as long as I'm eating enough salads and overall my diet is well balanced, then it's like if I'm craving McDonald's, I'll go to McDonald's. I, I'm not better than a lot of stuff. I haven't had McDonald's in so long, but I actually crave the filet fish That is not even seafood. That is disgusting. <laughs> Have you ever had a filet fish hey, It's so know. fucking good. Uh, Holy know. shit. Or even their soft serve ice cream. Or their nuggets, which isn't chicken. You ever see Supersize Me, Morgan Spurlock's documentary? Yes. All I do is talk about documentaries. This podcast is tired. Actually, yeah, no, Morgan Spurlock. Oh, uh, that... Supersize Me. Of when course. he just ate McDonald's every day and of almost course. died. Of course. <laughs> I, I saw this, uh, most of this one by the stoner comedian. What's his name? Doug... Uh, oh, Benson? Doug Benson. Yeah. Uh, Super high me. He, uh, oh, he did Super high me. And he also did this one... Following, because he heard Morgan Spurlock was going to Comic-Con to do a documentary, he did his own with like a similar name about smoking weed at Comic-Con. It was Comic-Con. good. I saw it. But it was funny. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's calling for Morgan. He's pretty good. All right. Lastly, either, there's an either question. Either a piece of advice that you actually possess and you would tell someone else, or what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, Something that just stayed with sure. you. Well, you know, I don't remember a lot of great advice. Which has led me to think for years that if I were to give advice to, um, let's say, middle school, high school age kids, yeah. advice that I wish I would have gotten. That's what I mean, yes. Then it would be, because of my own experience uh, and lack of not thinking enough about it, would be to really start thinking about jobs early. Like career paths in terms of, uh, in a very practical way, how... You spend your day every day at a job because the advice that most of us grew up with of our generation was you're going to change your career several times. It doesn't, you know, don't worry about uh, picking your career too soon. Don't worry about picking your major. Mm-hmm. I, it, that uh, completely backfired, that advice for me, because I found myself uh, with a sociology degree 
that I very unconfidently went into, uh, and then having no idea what to do for a job after college. So I and, I, and then in the research for getting a job, I realized, oh, I could have easily been thinking about this in middle school. Sure. And it was just stuff that I had never learned. Or just at least get in touch with your own unique strengths and skill set to see sure. what it could translate to later That's in right. life. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think they're starting to do more of that. I actually teach a class called College and Career Readiness. Uh-huh. It's in its first year ever, though, right now. Yeah. And it's 2018. You're right. This class should have been around back in the day. All right. Here's how I'm ending this podcast, and I feel so privileged to say this, but happy birthday, buddy. Thank you, Josh. I'm stoked that you came in on your birthday to record this. This was great. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's officially episode 10 in the books. I'll talk to you soon.